All right, Romans chapter 8. I know it's been I know it's been a little while, but Romans chapter 8. All right, hey, I just got a notification that we're going live. Okay, here we go. Romans chapter 8. I am going to verify something cuz I'm worried. Romans chapter 8. Give me one second. Romans chapter 8. Make sure we're live. Romans chapter 8. Maybe. Here we go. All right. There we go. All right. Now I can turn the volume down. Open up the chat in case someone asks a question. All right. There we go. All of that wonderful technology stuff out of the way. Romans chapter 8. Now, we have been in this chapter and we were moving along and we were going to get to the, the passage that everyone wants to get to a lot of times when people are preaching. Um, in fact, if you have the Bible open, Romans chapter 8, I'll just show you. Romans chapter 8, kind of what we've done, and then we'll back up and put this all back together, hopefully in a way that makes sense, all right? Romans chapter 8. We were fast approaching the section where we would start talking about things like Romans 8, 29, for whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate, and we were about to get involved in that entire discussion and controversy, and I was thinking about how we're going to approach that controversy, um, because, you know, no, no matter who listens, there's going to be 50% of the people are going to disagree with whatever we say in regards to the subject. But uh, so I'm thinking about how to approach that. And while we were getting close to that, I kind of realized, wait a minute, there's a couple of verses here that kind of got overlooked. And so I'm trying to take these verses and now work through them and, and create a greater hopefully create a situation where there's a more discussion in regards to a very important subject. So let's begin this way, all right? Let's start this way, all right? The topic at hand, the question at hand, is what is a Christian view on suffering? What is the Christian understanding on suffering? Please note, I'm being very specific. What is the Christian? Now, probably, sadly, I probably shouldn't even have done that in the title. I should throw out which word? Christian. And the reason why is, is there a, is there a agreed upon view about anything within Christianity? Okay. The answer is no. All right. So I guess what I should say, what is a biblical view of understanding? That's, that's a very different way of stating it, right? Because within Christianity, you, you, you can find anything. What is the, what is the biblical view of understand, uh, or what is the biblical view on suffering? So here's what I, I and I challenge you to do this, and I, I told you to try to, if you were to write, uh, grab a piece of paper and write out five points of a Christian or a biblical understanding of suffering, what would they be? But let's do this, all right? Let's, let's start it this way this morning. We can all agree that suffering is a reality, Everybody should say, amen. No, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, suffering is going to be a part of the human experience. Agreed? So everyone suffers. And even though everyone suffers, everyone, so everyone suffers and every individual has some kind of philosophy or understanding about suffering. You watch any movie. You watch any television show, usually somewhere in that story, someone's going to suffer something, correct? 
and you're going to have one character talking to another character and they're, and, and they're going to say something about suffering, how this person should deal with it, and maybe even the movie itself will throw out some philosophical understanding of the concept of suffering. We, can, we all understand that, yes? Now, if we were to break down the, the, the basic views of suffering, what would be the basic schools of thought when it comes to suffering? What would be some of the basic schools of thought that have tried to offer their explanation to suffering throughout human history? What would be some of the basic schools of thought on suffering? Okay, uh, we could throw this idea of karma or, re- or, or reincarnation. All right, you can put karma reincarnation view. All right, this is the idea that you suffer now because you have either caused suffering. Uh, at some point in the past, maybe even in a previous life, the reason you're suffering in this life is because you did bad things in a previous life, that somehow you're suffering, you, you deserve it. You, you're getting payback, right? It's the idea that you deserve it. You're suffering because of the suffering you get, get later. For example, in a kind of in a reincarnation idea, not the popular reincarnation, oh, in my past life I was a king, or in my past life, you know, that not that nonsense, but in a more traditional understanding of reincarnation, we go like this. Oh, I was abused as a child. That's because I abused in my previous life. That's a, such a comforting, that's a comforting view right there, right? Okay, the reason you're suffering is because you caused suffering in a past life. Or the idea that you're suffering because you deserve it somehow, you, you, because of something you have done. So everybody understands that view. It can show up in a lot of different ways. Or make, make, make sure you understand that. I'm just giving you the basic school of thought, and there's all kinds of variations. But basically, this says, if you're suffering, what does it basically say? You deserve it. All right. All right what's in the second school of thought? All right. Say, say that again. Okay. We'll call this the atheistic view of suffering. Right? What's the atheistic view of suffering? No purpose, no meaning. There's no purpose, no meaning. Right? There's nothing controlling it, guiding it. It's just what? It's just part part of life. Like we live in a messed up world. We don't really know why it's messed up. It's just the way it works. You suffer. There's no divine purpose. There's no divine meaning in it. Maybe you can learn some lesson from it. They may say you can learn a lesson from it. But it's just a lesson that you assign to it. Right? I mean, it doesn't really, there's no real meaning or purpose in it. So suffering is just something that happens with no, let's state it this way. The atheistic view would be suffering is something that just happens and there is no transcendent purpose or meaning to it. The only meaning given to it is the meaning who assigns to it. You. So if you can assign a good meaning to it to make you feel better, then by all means do that. It doesn't mean it's a reality, it's just whatever. All right. So those are two schools of thought. What would be a third school of thought? Do what? Okay. Well, let's bring in a theistic. We'll call this a theistic view. Right? A theistic view. Now, typically in a theistic view, typically, well, I can't say typically. I'll say it, it, it is common within a, and I say theistic. I didn't say Christian. Within a theistic view, what is a, a kind of a common way of thinking that arises within theism and suffering? Okay. 
I don't think that's the common view within theism. We, we have a, a, a very important book in the Bible, written probably somewhere around the time of Abra, Abram or Abraham. And uh, there were a lot of people who were theists who showed up at Job's doorstep to offer him some advice. And what did theism lead them to? He did something wrong, that he's being punished for sin. Well, I think what's very common with the theistic view is you're suffering because God is angry with you. Isn't that, I mean, think about it. Within theism, if your crops aren't growing, why? You offended to God, yes? If it's flooding, why? You offend God. You didn't make a, a, a sacrifice. I think that's more common. Now, you may disagree with me, but I think within theism, that's more common than, oh, it's for, you know, God's glory. I know. I, I think that the theistic view is you, you, you did wrong. Now, there's a transcendent reason it's happening, but it's because you're being punished. Right? And trust me, that flows over within Christianity as well. Yes? That shows up within Christianity all the time, okay? All right? So, uh, that, we're going to call that the theistic view. All right? We're just going to call it a theistic view. That God's a, there's a God involved, but it's because you've, you displeased God. So, what we have kind of a karma reincarnation view. We've got, what was the second view? Atheistic view, and then we have kind of a theistic view. Then, you will call this the Christian view. We'll call this the Christian view. Now, there's some other views in there. We could go into Buddhism. There's some other views. I'm just giving you some basic schools of thought, all right? Um, Christian view, what is the problem with the Christian view? The problem with the Christian view is there's so much disagreement in it, right? What do you find within the Christian view? uh, Seth, uh, Seth threw one out. Satan. All suffering is because of Satan. Satan's causing it. It's almost like Satan somehow is is the one in charge, right? What also shows up within Christianity? You committed a sin. Trust me, that shows up all the time, right? Okay, yeah, in other words, what what influences Christianity is the theistic view. It it still influences Christianity. Then you can ultimately get to what hopefully is a more biblical understanding of it. I'm not going to articulate that right now. I just want you to see there's all these different schools of thought. And when people suffer, and when you suffer, and what, what, what's probably one of the biggest things that influences how you view suffering? What do you think is the, the biggest indicator in how you view suffering? Nope. Are you the one suffering, or is someone else suffering? It's amazing how your perspective on suffering changes when it goes from their suffering versus your suffering. All right? Okay? It, 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 it shouldn't be that way, but it's just the case. When you suffer, you view it differently than when someone else is suffering. When someone else is suffering, you're like, oh, that's bad. Okay. Well, you know, you may, you may even try to assign some reason that they, they're suffering. You may even try to assign some reason. Who knows what you'll say? But then when you suffer, oh, the whole world changes, does it not? Right? So I just want us to keep that in mind that there's all these different schools of thought. So in Romans 8... This idea of suffering and glory shows itself, does it not? 
Yes? And we looked at the little literary device where you bracket something with the idea of suffering and glory, right? And we talked about the different ways people groan and, and the groanings that occur because of we live in a fallen world. Remember all of that? All right, well, what we want to look at, though, is we want to look at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 21. All right, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 21. I've done a Bible study exercise on this. We've already done one sermon on this, and now we're going to try to go through this relatively quick and try to make this, hopefully, make as much sense as possible. All right, here we go. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willing, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same and hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of the corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Right Now, the issue with these verses is that one, they, part of them form the bracket for that part that comes in the middle. All right, we talked about that. But, so that's one problem. They just kind of serve as a bracket, so that leads people to do what to them? Kind of just overlook them. All right? Second problem with these verses, they're kind of really wordy and written in a way that you may not catch. Well, there's a lot going on here. So I decided to stop, go back to them, and really try to take them apart. Really try to take them apart. And I did so in a Bible study exercise to get everyone to participate and everyone to jump in. And then I did one sermon on this. So now we're going to take it apart and see where we can go. All right. So first we have verse 18. All right. Romans 8, 18. Now, if we're doing an outline, you should already have the outline because I gave you the outline. But what do you have in verse 18? What did we call this in our outline? All right. Okay, present suffering and future glory. Okay, look at Romans 8.18. For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. All right, please note, we have present suffering, future glory. Now, we talked about the fact that glory and suffering are intermingled. But for this section, I want you to see, this deals with the idea of present suffering and future glory. Present suffering and future glory. Does everyone see that? All right. Now, I'm not going to go through and work through the whole outline. We're just going to take it apart piece by piece. So what do we need to understand from verse 18? We need to understand that the present suffering, the suffering that we currently endure, right, cannot, listen, is not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Simply put, what is that verse trying to demonstrate to you and to me? Okay, well, it's telling us not to compare something, right? They're not worthy to be compared. So in other words, we don't look at our current suffering it's not even worthy to compare it to the future glory because the future glory so far exceeds the suffering that therefore what, how should we live our life? Not almost, not comparing, but living the present in light of the future so that the present suffering ha- does not, cannot, how can I state this, should not dominate our thinking, but the light of the glory that is to come. 
right? And I tried to draw the contrast about the, the difference between comparing and living in light of. Comparison, you're almost doing this. Okay, man, I'm suffering. Okay, oh man, look at this suffering. Okay, look at the glory. Okay, I got to compare the two, right? And here's saying it's not worthy to compare, right? Because comparison, if you can start convincing, well, I don't know if this suffering, I don't know if the future glory is going to be worth this future suffering, that can create all kinds of problems. What he's saying is that the future glory is so great, don't even, they're not even worthy to compare it. Just live in light of it. Live in light of it, that changes your perspective. Agreed? Does, does that make some kind of sense? Yes? All right. Um, a couple of things I have here in my notes to, to try to explain this. That, th- that this glory, which we look for, surpasses in, in a million times the misery of our afflictions. That the glory which we look for surpasses, you can put a thousand times, a million times, the, uh, the misery of our afflictions. Now, this is very important. I want you to think of it a, a couple of ways, all right? And I, and I, and I think this will make sense. They, they're not worthy to be compared, right? So think of your future, your, your current present suffering and realize that they are nothing in relation to the degree that in degree compared to the suffering. Like, here's the, or I'm sorry, to the glory. Here's the glory, and they, they are not the same in degree. The glory is so much greater than the suffering that they're not anywhere close to the same in degree. Does that make sense? For these are light compared with that eternal weight of glory which they shall work out. Second Corinthians 4.17 says that. They're nothing in degree. They're not the same in any way, shape, or form. A second thing, they're nothing in duration. They're nothing in duration. What do we mean by that? For these sufferings are but for a moment, but the glory is how long? Eternal. These will pass, but the glory will what? Never pass. The, the current suffering will dim. The eternal glory will never dim. The current suffering will be diminished the eternal glory will never be diminished, right? Does that, does that make sense? So they're not to be compared because they're not the same in degree and they're not the same in duration. They're not the same in degree. They're not the same in duration. There is no comparison there. I want to make sure I drive that point home. All right, that's very straightforward. That's not difficult to understand. What is the most difficult part about verse 18? Not from an interpretive perspective. What's the most difficult thing about verse 18 as far as living it out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? What can you see? Suffering. What can you not see? Future glory. What are you experiencing? What are you not experiencing? The future glory. Now, future, there is some glory you are experiencing. The future glory. We've got to make sure we state that, right? You're not experiencing it. So when you can't see it and you're not experiencing it, it's hard for it to be what? Real. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, glory. Yeah, the future glory is future, but glory we are experiencing now. But the future glory involves a, the glorification of the body, no more pain, no more suffering, new heavens, new earth. That part we can't experience yet. But the parts of it we can experience now. There's glory we definitely experience now. So, um, the, so, I wanna, so I want you to see that, that. So what's required for verse 18 to ever go from the page to your life? 
What does the Bible say about how we are to walk? Walk by faith? Not by sight, right. Because sight will lead you to what? Well, focus on the suffering. Focus on the suffering. Faith will hopefully get you to focus on what? The eternal glory, right? You're focusing on that which is not yet here, right? You're, you're longing for that. So that's, that's the idea. So, so present suffering, future glory. But there's one very important part in that verse that I want you to, to really look at. Right? All of that's really simple stuff, right? And I know I had to go through that really quick, but that's all right. What, what is, from an interpretive part, what's interesting in verse 18? All of that was very simple. You didn't even need my help. What's, what's very, well, technically you're Protestants, you don't need my help for anything. But, okay, but we'll pretend that you may need my help here. On verse 18, what's there that from an interpretive par- perspective should get your attention as a good Bible student? Do I? Revealed where? In us. That's interesting, right? Because the future glory, sometimes we think of the future glory as like, okay, the future glory is heaven, but there's a future glory that will be revealed where? In us. What does that seem to imply or involve? That, there, that, that the, glor- the glorification is not just a change of location. It's not just a change of conditions. It's not just a change of circumstance. What will also be a part of that glorification? A change in us. It's going to be revealed in us. Now, how is it going to be revealed in us? Two, two major aspects, a part of the future glory, dealing with in us. What's the two things? This is like glorification 101. Two aspects. It's going to be revealed in us. In what two ways is it going to be revealed in us? A new body, which means no more pain, suffering, or death. Right? And then secondly, no more sin. No more sin. All right. So there's two aspects that's going to be revealed in us. It's interesting that Paul, he's talking about the future glory, but he wants us to understand it's going to be revealed in us, which seems to be something critical to this whole section. All right, everybody got that? All right, very good. All right, now verse 19. Oh man, we got to hurry. Verse 19, I got to finish it this time. Now, for the earnest expectation, um, so we have the uh, present suffering, future glory. Everybody got that? Now, verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. What do, what's the, how do we title this for our outline? No, 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 no. Just, there's no groaning going on in verse 19. Present waiting. Future manifestation. All right. Present waiting, future manifestation. All right. Now, yeah, remember, we, we had tied this to, remember, there's two things going on. We talked about this as related to the uh, little bracket and then the, that section, but we're just looking at 18 to 21 is individual here. Okay. All right. So 19. So what was 18 in our outline? Present suffering, future glory. Verse 19 in our outline is? Present waiting, future revealing, or future manifestation. Now, just keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. All right? Now, where, where, how, how does the text describe the present waiting? 
Well, the King James says, for the earnest expectation of the creature. Now, the word creature there, we think, refers to creation, not necessarily the individual, the whole of creation. And the earnest expectation. Here's how some other translations handle this. For the creation waits an eager expectation. New Living Translation, for all creation is waiting eagerly. ESV, for the creation waits with eager longing. The Berean study, the creation waits an eager expectation. The Berean literal, for the earnest expectation. The King James, for the earnest expectation. The New King James, for the earnest expectation. But what's the idea of this earnest expectation? What's the idea? Earnest, right? It's it's sincere, it's eagerly, it's, it's waiting, right? And then the expectation is the idea of a you're waiting for something, a longing for something. Something is coming. There's a waiting for something. All right? And who is waiting according to this verse? It seems to be creation. I know the King James says creature, but it seems to be creation. All of creation is waiting for something. It's, It's longing for something. And what is it waiting for? A manifestation. Yes? And what is it waiting for the manifestation of? The sons of God, which is interesting, right? Why is it interesting? Why is that interesting? Now, what's interesting about it is remember the end of verse 18. Remember, I spent all that time at the end of verse 18 saying, where is it going to, what's going to happen in verse 18? Where is it going to be revealed? In us. Who's the us? Sons of God. Right? Isn't that interesting? It's going to be revealed in us. What is creation waiting for? For the manifestation of whom? The sons of God. The sons of God. So what is that? It's interesting. So creation waits for what? The glorification of the sons of God because it seems that the creation cannot experience the glorification until the sons of God are Revealed. If you go through Revelation, where do you get the new heavens and the new earth? All right, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I don't want to do this because of time. But if y'all can't answer this, then we have. Then that's when a pastor learns you got to stop and you got to. If you're a teacher and your students can't answer the question, what do you do, Sarah? Okay, okay. What do you do, Sarah, if the te- if the students can't answer a question? Yeah, yeah. No, you stop, you stop and go back. Okay. You, okay. No, you don't ask again. You don't ask again. You stop and say, we're going to go back and study it again. Okay. That, that's when this, this is this from a teacher perspective. This is what happens when a student can't answer the question. They are asking you for something. They're asking for you to teach it to them again. They're pleading with you. They're begging. They're like, oh, please teach me again. Please. I can't answer that question. Please repeat yourself 50 more. They're begging you. All right, now look at the chronology there. That's what I want you to see. Okay, good. Someone got Revelation 21. What's the chronology there? Just going through, if we place it in the, chrono, the chronological order of Revelation, what happens in chapter 20? Let's start with chapter 20. Oh, thank you. Okay, now that's making a, an interpretation, but okay. So, <laughs> that, that, so we won't do that. Okay, what happens at the beginning of Revelation 20? 
Okay, good. This is open book for everyone. Your Bibles are able to be used. All right, Satan is bound for how long? A thousand years, okay? Then at the end of the thousand years, what occurs? He's let loose, boom. Then what happens? Okay, we have, we have war, right? Then what happens? Okay, we have the destruction of everything, agreed? And then they have the great white throne, right? What's done at the great white throne? Final judgment, right? Final judgment. Then what occurs? Then the new heaven and the new earth, right? So everything else has to transpire before you get to the new heavens and the new earth, right? You already have judgment. You already have to have all of that done. You've even had, if you believe in a literal thousand years, you got a literal thousand years. All of that has to occur before you get to the new heaven and the new earth. So what has to be, what has to happen? If Think of it this way. If the final judgment is over, then what has clearly been revealed by that time? Who are the sons of God? Yes? All right. Now, so creation waits. So I just find it interesting that 18 says it's going to be revealed where? In us. And then it's not until it's revealed in us, until it's manifested in us, that creation, that's what creation is waiting for. Creation is waiting for that. Because creation is going to do what? What's creation going to continue to experience? Suffering. Pain, famine, disease, earthquake, war, suffering, suffering, suffering. That's why after this section, we have the three groanings, right? Do we not have the three groanings in the next section? Yes? Okay. But it's going to continue to do that until when? Until we are revealed. Does that make sense? All right. So what's number one in our outline? Verse 18. How did we... Present suffering and future glory. Where is that glory going to be revealed? In us, verse 19, present waiting and future revelation. What's, wh- who is presently waiting? All of creation. What is it waiting for? The future manifestation of the sons of God. Now, that leads us to verse 20. I'm going as fast as I can. I'm going as fast as I can. All right, here we go. Verse 20. All right. And, and what's the most important lesson? What's the most important lesson you should write in your notes? When pastor asks a question and I can't answer it, I am begging him to teach me again. All right? Okay. No, no. You're just, you're, that's just you're telling me, hey, preach the sermon again next week. That's what you're asking. Okay. All right? Now, the people online may be like, no, don't preach it again next week. But if you can't answer, you're asking. All right? Verse 20. So what do we do with verse 20? For the creature... No, we don't have groanings yet. Okay. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willing, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. What do we have in verse 20? Now, what have we done in verse 18 and 19? Present, future. Yes? Verse 18, present what? Present suffering, future glory. What do we do in verse 19? Present waiting, future manifestation. What do we have in verse 20? I'm hearing different things. Same again. Okay. Present vanity or futility and future hope. Present vanity and future hope. Now, already from these three verses, from these three verses, so far, 
right? Now you can jump down and put this down. From these three verses so far, what would you be able to say is a key element in the Christian or biblical understanding of suffering? What would you be able to, to articulate clearly from the three verses so far? All right, that suffering is present and is going to continue until glory is revealed in us and the sons of God are manifest. So that means what should you expect? Suffering. Let me say it again. What should you expect? What should you expect? The reason I I see everyone here sitting in in, in a pew on a Sunday, it's like, yeah, I should expect it. But then as soon as it happens, you're like, what happened? Why did this occur? Where did this come from? Why? Why? There's no why. You should be expecting it. Think of it this way. You should be expecting suffering as much as you expect the sun to come up tomorrow. And I know it doesn't actually come up with the earth turns. Okay, you get the idea. You should expect suffering as much as you expect the moon to appear, the sun to rise, and the next day. When you go to bed, you fully expect to wake up the next day. Yes? But you don't fully expect suffering to be waiting for you. Because when it happens, you're shocked by it. Why are you shocked by it? The Bible just made it very clear. Suffering is what? The present. The present is suffering. The present is suffering. I, 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 don't, I don't think that's registering with everybody, right? Suffering is the present. I know that sounds like, that doesn't sound like a Christian, that sounds very, you know, almost like a, a negative approach, but the Bible screams that suffering is the present. It is expected. And why is it expected? <clears throat> now, Christians have an, an understanding for why. Because of the fall, right? Sin exists, the world is under the curse of sin, and what does sin bring? Death or suffering. Get that? So I, I, the Christian view is it's expected, it's expected. Now, listen, that doesn't mean when someone calls you and they're suffering, you're like, hey, well, you should have expected it. Okay, all right, so call me when something really unexpected happens, all right? But yeah, but my house just burned down and all my kids died. Well, call me when something really unexpected happens. But, but it, so you don't say it that way, but you as a Christian need to be equipped that when it happens, you're like, okay, well, that was expected, And I know you never say that that was expected. You always say it was, it's not unexpected. Isn't it amazing that we treat death as if it's unexpected? It's pretty expected. Yes? Okay, all right. Now, Now, so verse 20, here we go. For the creature or creation was made subject to vanity... Not willing, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. All right. What are some things we can take apart from verse 20? We've got to do this quickly. All right. What are some things we can take apart from verse 20? Okay. Well, before we get to the fact of why, that's good. That there is a current what? Vanity. There's a current vanity. Now, that's bizarre, but it's not bizarre, Right. Because on one hand, what does it mean? There's a meaninglessness built into the existence that we experience. 
which is why we go to Ecclesiastes. What's the key phrase to interpret the book of Ecclesiastes? Do what? No, 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 no. That's not the key phrase. Under the sun. Three words. Under the sun. Under the sun. Under the sun. Why? Because under the sun means when you're looking which way? Looking horizontally. When I look horizontally, what am I looking at? At life under the sun. And if I just look there, what do I see? Vanity, 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 meaningless, 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 meaningless. If I want to destroy the concept of meaninglessness, where must I look? Up! I got to look to the Creator. In life, there is a sense of vanity and meaninglessness. So in one sense, when an atheist says, everything is meaningless, you can say, you're smarter than many Christians. The problem is there's something above the sun. Yes, using that in a, in a obviously we're not trying to get a, the geographical location of where God is located. You understand. The point is, is under the sun, there's, meaning, there's a meaningless built into creation. And how is it, why is creation seemingly have a, a sense of meaninglessness? Because what do you, what do you experience in, in this life that appears to be meaningless? Birth, suffering, death. Birth, suffering, death. Now, there may be periods of happiness and joy thrown in there, but you're born, you suffer, you die, and guess what happens when you die? Nobody stinking cares. Now, I know you think they do because they stand at a graveside and cry a few tears, but they move on. Life moves on. We, we, we assign more meaning when there is no meaning. I've said it so many times. People, high school, thinking that's the most important. That's four years of meaninglessness. Nobody cares what you did in high school. Nobody, why do you even care? It's, oh, oh, and you were all worried about this and this. All the, think about all the things you worried about in four years of high school. Five seconds after you graduated, did it matter? Didn't matter one, nobody cares. Like, oh, so tell me about your high school experience. We really are interested. Nobody cares who you were, what you did. Nobody cares. I'll never forget one of the uh, airmen I worked with. They had moved all of our offices into like the main lobby there at Offutt Air Force Base. It was weird. We were like in a fishbowl, right? It's like the lobby. The pharmacy's over here. Records is here. And we're like in these cubicles right in the middle. It was really weird. People just walking around like everybody coming into the hospital just looking at you. It was like a really weird place to, to have an office. But it, it was just open cubicles. But this new airman, I can't remember his name. He, he lived in uh, Iowa. And he was on part of the like the state champion football team in Iowa. So he, he put on his little wall like newspaper clippings of, you know, him in high school football and I put all this stuff. And, I, and there was this uh, boss who was not super, super nice and, of course, it wasn't so politically correct back then. But he walked in and looked at it and he's like, why do you have that hanging up? He's like, because I'm proud of it. He's like, nobody cares! Nobody cares what you did in high school! So get over it and take it down! Right? Nobody cares! Right? And so... That's, but there's truth to that. You care, but nobody else does, right? There's a vanity to it, right? Does everybody understand? There's a meaninglessness built into it. You live, you die, and everyone moves on. You work in a job for 20 years. You walk out the door, 
Three seconds later, they're already there. Someone already sitting in your office. You come back six months later. Do they care? They don't, even know you. they don't even care who you were. They don't care what you did. They don't care. They could care less. Now you say, well, that's that that's depressing. No, it's not. Because that vanity is telling you something. That vanity is screaming something at you. All right? But let's, let's go through this. All right? Hurry, 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 hurry. All right? So we got the meaninglessness. Now, but here's the thing. How did the meaningless come about? For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. It didn't happen willingly. The cre- creation did not choose it. Creation did not choose it. Creation didn't wake up one day and go, hey, we want to be meaningless. We want everything. No. Nobody wanted it. They didn't choose it. Now, who, now, who is the cause of it? Okay. Well, well, let's, well forget the hope. Who is the one who's, who caused it to happen? How, it, it, what pronoun is used? Him. Him. Who is the him in the verse? There's two choices. What are the two choices? Adam or God? Adam or God? Now, why is this important to figure out? Okay, well, does it matter? Some say it doesn't. Some commentaries don't even bother to address this issue. Okay? Some believe it matters greatly. I think it has a lot to do with how we understand suffering. All right? For example, let's go with Adam. If Adam is the reason that brought everything into subjection, creation didn't choose it. It wasn't creation. Adam and Eve sinned, right? And by their sin, that brought everything into subjection. If it's Adam and Eve who did it, or if it's Adam, if we just go with Adam because it says him, right? It doesn't say her. If we go with Adam... How does she get off the hook? That just seems not right. Okay, okay. <laughs> that, that, okay, that just doesn't even seem right. Okay, that does not seem right. Okay, that should say her. Okay, all right, but all right, that, that's a whole different subject. But, you know, him, her, what is a pronoun in 2021? Okay, all right, we won't even go there. Okay, so, but if it's Adam, what does that mean? What does it mean? For, in, in regards to suffering. So Adam brought suffering in, and now we're all subjected to vanity because of what Adam did. So, is there a purpose to it? The purpose would be like, I'm suffering because Adam messed up. Oh, he's part of creation. Right. Yeah, I'm just going with this idea. I know. I'm, I know yeah. I'm going with that same idea. If you're going with that idea. Then creation subjected itself to creation in a way, a roundabout yeah. way. Unless you're separating Adam from creation, which would be, okay, you're, there's some problems. I see that. So that's a good way of trying to argue the possible problems. But what are the ramifications? I think the ramifications make suffering seem like, 
Like, like it's just like Adam messed up and I'm suffering because Adam. Now, you could argue Adam and Eve sinned and brought sin into the world, and I, there's no question about it. I, we all sin in Adam. We all die because of Adam. There is some truth to that, but it destroys really a transcendent meaning. It just means like Adam messed up and we're suffering. Now, if we flip it and we put the him referring to whom? God, that changes everything. Why? Because Adam and Eve sinned, and what could he have done? Destroyed everything. But he did not. Adam and Eve sinned, and then he subjected all of creation to suffering, which would infer that he has to have a divine purpose in so doing it. Yes? Because we don't believe God acts arbitrarily with no purpose or mind or reason, yes? So if God, if the divine being, God, subjected all of creation to vanity, then there has to be a divine purpose in it. That changes your entire view of suffering. Now, some people don't like that. Why would some people not like that him being God? Putting the blame on God. We don't like that. Now, yes, Adam, I'm not denying Adam and Eve sin. I'm not denying that. I'm not denying that that didn't bring sin into the world. But what have I always said about Adam and Eve sinning and everyone else, and, and everything occurring? Is it, it's, it's troubling from a philosophical standpoint. For what reason? Okay, who created Adam and Eve? Did he know they were going to sin? Did he know that uh, Satan was going to use the serpent to get into the garden? Did he allow Satan into the garden? Yes. Okay, so, so God sets it all up. Then they sin, and then you're like, okay, well now, that's just what, even if you try to get God out of it, he's still involved in it. And then even after they sinned, what could he have done? Could have destroyed Satan. Could destroy Adam and Eve. And, you say, and people always say, well, he did so because of grace. Wait a minute. So it was a gracious, gracious act to preserve Adam and Eve, knowing that that was going to bring forth humanity, that for thousands and thousands of years there would be murder, starvation, and rape, and killing. That, I don't know if that's... Like, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that being a gracious act. The most gracious thing would have been to stop it right then and there. Okay? But we're viewing it from what perspective? From a human perspective. Right? So, so there is vanity, and God subjected all of us to that vanity. Now, what are some reasons why that has been offered in church history? I've got to go through these quickly. I don't have any time to articulate these. Are, are you ready? Okay, here we go. I'm going to give you four. You can probably come up with five. Right? Number one, the, van, the, present, the present vanity should create a longing for heaven or eternity. The, the present vanity should create a desire for heaven. Remember what Paul said? What did he long to do? Yeah. Die, to die and be absent from the body that is present with the Lord. But he realized that he had, it was needed to be here, but that desire was there. Look, the present vanity should constantly make you long for something that isn't vain. It's, that's what it should do. All right? Number two. Creates a desire for heaven. Number two, it works to break our love for this world. 
It should break your love for this world. Why? Well, if you acknowledge that everything here was subjected to vanity by God, that means there's a meaninglessness here. That meaninglessness should drive you not to love that which is meaningless, but to love that which is meaningful. And the world is meaningless. There's vanity here. It should do that. It should do that. It doesn't always work. Number three, it should work to set our affections on things above. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Why should you set your affections on things above? Why would you set your affections on things that is vain and meaningless, filled with suffering? And then number four, Give me a second here. I want to look at this one before I say it. I'm go- I don't know if I, I may want to change this one. I don't have time to go through this passage here. Let me look here. Um, yeah, I- I'll-, I'll throw this one in there. Um, for ministry. What-, what does that mean? Okay, well, for when you become a Christian and you understand that you're currently in the midst of present suffering, but there's a future glory, Right? There's a, there's a present vanity, but there's a future hope. When you are filled with that kind of knowledge of the future and the eternal, that should motivate you to minister to those who are suffering the trappings of the vanity, of the, of the present suffering. And so I, I put down the story of the Good Samaritan. He, he was out, who went to minister to someone who was suffering the present because of the future hope and the future glory. The future hope and the future glory should what, take, should fill you with such a future and eternal perspective that you want to minister to those trapped within the temporal. It should motivate that. Does that make sense? All right, now go back to Romans 8. Now, church history, they give a lot more reasons. They kind of break them down a little more, and I've got some, some of the early church fathers trying to explain all of this, but we don't have time to get into all of that. So let's go through this. Everybody ready? All right. If you can, if you can, if you can review and summarize, then we'll be done. All right. If you can't, that means you're asking me to teach you again. All right. So here we go. Romans 8, verse 18. For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. How did we summarize verse 18 in our outline? Present suffering, future glory. Where is that glory going to be revealed? In us. Verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. How did we summarize verse 19 in our outline? Present waiting, future manifestation. What is the uh, present waiting? Creation is waiting for what? For the manifestation of the sons of God, for us. Verse 20. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. All right. What do we get from that? Present vanity, future hope. He subjected it by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. We are subjected to it, but in hope. There is a hope. That is connected. And then, verse 21, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption and to the glorious liberty of, of the children of God. What, how could we put verse 21 down in our outline? Present bondage, future liberty, or future deliverance. All right? Presently, we're, we're, we're in bondage of the corruption. Are we not in bondage to that corruption? I know Christianity teaches that, no, when you become Christian, you're set free. I'm not set free from the bondage of this corruption, am I? 
Does my body get sick and die? Do I suffer? Do I continue to sin? Then I'm in bondage. Stop saying that you're free. It's just nonsense. I'm, I'm free which way? Positionally, not practically. But what am I hoping for? A future deliverance. All right? And then, to show you that, that, uh, that current bondage of corruption, what does he do in verse 22 and following? The groaning. The present groaning. Yes? He talks of the present groaning. That groaning is occurring. Right now, we live in an experience where that we suffer, there is pain, and there is groaning. Now, our job is to see all of this from a divine perspective. The divine perspective is God subjected all of this to that suffering and to that meaninglessness. Yes, Adam and Eve sinned, which brought it about, but it was God who ultimately subjected to it. So that means I must see all suffering somehow playing a part in God's divine eternal purpose. And that divine eternal purpose can be summarized in what words? What is ultimately, how do you, what is the answer to this question? What is God's ultimate divine purpose? His glory. His glory. His glory. All right, there you have it. We'll have to stop right there. All right, does that, did that make it, did we make it through it? Does that, is that helpful? Does you now understand maybe things in that verse you didn't ever pay attention to? You see why that, who that hymn is in verse 20, is it verse 20, um, is so important? That changes everything. You get that wrong, your whole view of suffering is completely radically different. You ask how many Christians, it would be interesting how many Christians you could ask who the hymn is there and how many would say it was Adam. I don't think it's Adam. I don't think it's Adam. Personally. Because Adam could not have, what, what, what's one thing Adam could not have done that that verse said happened? Could not subjected us in hope. Very good. That's the key interpretive feature there. He couldn't have subjected us in hope. God is the one who subjected us in hope. Why? Because he knew that the present suffering was ultimately going to give away to a future glory that would be manifested in the children of God whom he would save. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Very important study. Maybe I'm, I'm afraid that the speed through this will destroy the impact of it, but I hope everyone will manifest, meditate on it so that it can truly appreciate what is there because there's plenty there to, to, to take apart and to consider because we definitely need a more biblical understanding of suffering than we probably all currently have. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...